right, thank you so much. And again, thank you for being with us on this Wednesday evening. I wonder how many of you brought your Bible with you. We you hold up the Word of God all over the building tonight? And I want to ask you to join me once again in the Old Testament, the very last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. Malachi chapter number 2. Uh, I have an old Schofield Bible, if you have one, that's page 982. And if you don't, if you'll just go to the New Testament, turn back one book, you'll hit the book of Malachi. And uh, so we're right at the end of chapter 2 tonight, and I hope to finish up with chapter number 2. Seems like I really got, to, I got to mired up in uh, chapter 1, and now I've got bogged down in chapter 2. I will tell you this, I think this book is becoming quickly one of my favorite books of the Bible. And I've never preached through the book of Malachi before, but I've got to say, boy, is it right up to date with where we're living as we live out these last days. And so I want to look at one verse here in just a moment. I'll ask you to leave your Bibles open and share. I'll try to read the verse and offer up an explanation in just a minute. While you're finding that, I want to remind you, on October the 20th, October the 20th, now that's just right around the corner, the way time's flying. How many of y'all can believe we're already in September? Anybody in here got your Christmas tree yet, up yet? No, you don't. No, no. Who, does anybody else have theirs up? Yeah, do you ever take them down or you just, you, oh, you don't. They stay up all year long? All right. Well, anyway, how many of y'all got your Christmas shopping done already? Can I say that I hate people like you? Somebody say, you got your shopping done? Is it December the 24th yet? No, sir. But anyway, don't you hate people just plan out so far ahead? I fly by the seat of my pants, and if I just think, man, I've always got tomorrow, and so why rush about and get it done today if I can put it off till tomorrow? And I preach against that, but that's the way I live anyway. But anyway, so October the 20th, I don't even know how I got detoured off of that, but October the 20th, purpose, uh, perfect attendance day in Sunday school. And what we're doing is we're going to take a picture of every class from the teenagers all the way up through the adults. Every class on that Sunday is going to have their picture made. That's why we want to push for perfect attendance and to get a good crowd here in Sunday school. And years ago, down at the old church, they got all the classes together, one by one, and took pictures of them. And many of those pictures are still hanging around here in some of our Sunday school classes. Well, after 100 years, don't you think it's time for an update? And so we're going to update all that. And so on October the 20th, prior to that, one week prior to that, on October the 13th, Brother Baker is going to be preaching our missions revival for us. And that's always a good meeting. And so we got some things coming up here in the next few weeks, so please make those a matter of prayer. Also, in the month of November, you may remember, November is what we're calling November to remember. And we're going to have a 100-year anniversary revival in the month a revival in the month of November, and uh, so uh, I'm making plans and I'm looking forward. I don't know if we'll go two or three days, but uh, we'll have revival meetings celebrating our 100-year uh, anniversary in the month of November. So uh, both of those things are just around the corner, and uh, so please make those things a matter of prayer. All right, Malachi chapter two. It is 7:31 on the dot. Okay, if you're there, would you say Amen? amen. Let's have prayer. We'll get started. Father, would you please bless your word tonight and to speak to our hearts and help me as I try to offer up an explanation of this great verse of Scripture. Please bless it to the good of our heart. In Jesus' name, amen. 
I read this story this week about these, uh, these two little boys who were always getting into trouble. They were very mischievous, and they were always getting into trouble. One of these little boys, they were both brothers. One of them was eight years old, and his brother, a little older, was ten years old. Well, anything, anytime around town when something troubling come up, something mischievous happened, the whole town knew probably that these two boys were at the, at the bottom of it. Well, the mama and the daddy of these two boys had tried everything they knew to kind of reel the boys in just a little bit and, and all, to, all to no effect, no help. So finally a new preacher moved into town. Somebody told this mama that this preacher in other places that he had been had had some success counseling young people, helping tr troubled youth. So she decided she'd call the church and see if the preacher would talk to her two boys. So she called down there, got a hold of the preacher, and the preacher agreed to speak to her two boys, but not at the same time individually. So she made the appointment. She took her eight-year-old down there to see the preacher. Now this preacher was a huge man, and he had a booming voice. She brought her little son in. She left, and that preacher looked over the top of his glasses, looked down, and in that emphatic, booming kind of a way, he says, uh, Son, do you know where God is? Well, the little boy didn't say anything. So the preacher kind of hit it once again a little bit more sternly, and he said, Boy, do you know where God is? Well, the little boy's eyes got a little bit bigger, and his mouth flew open. Well, this time he took his finger and he started pointing at it and beating on his desk. And he said, I want to know, do you know where God is? Well, about this time the little boy was just in tears, started screaming and ran out of the preacher's office and ran all the way home and crawled up under his bed. Well, his 10-year-old brother saw what had happened and he went upstairs and he said, uh, he said to his brother, what in the world is wrong? He said, we're in big trouble now. He said, what have we done? He said, well... He said that somebody has, uh, has, uh, has took God and they think we did it. <laughs> Does it ever seem like to you that God has gone missing? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, when we look around at our world that you and I are living in and all that's going on with all the mass shootings, all of the rioting and the upheaval politically in our nation, with the opioid, opioid epidemic, people dying by the thousands, do, do you ever think, where in the world has God gone? God has gone missing. Many times, looking around at our world today, we would just simply think that God has just walked off and left the world that He's created. If we're not careful, we'll reach the same conclusion that the people in Ezekiel's day reached. When they said this, look at this, Ezekiel chapter 9 and verse 9, Then said he unto me, The iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah is exceeding great, and the land is full of blood, and the city full of perverseness. Now let's stop right there. Is that not a description of America? Our land is full of blood. The, the iniquity of our nation is exceeding great. The land is full of blood. The cities are full of perverseness. But here's what they were saying. The Lord hath forsaken the earth, and the Lord seeth not. You know what they were saying? They were saying back in Ezekiel's day, we think God's just walked off and left us. God has gone missing. 
Let me stop. Leave that verse up for just a moment. Let me stop and tell you, I found out something interesting. I have an old Bible that I've used for years on my desk that I used to study out of, an old Schofield Bible. And for some reason, I don't know why, but I had written down back in 1997, Brother Zeno Gross, Brother Zeno, our former pastor, had preached from that text right there. And where they said, The Lord hath forsaken the earth, and he preached on three things. He said, number one, I wrote it down in my Bible, he said this, number one, God will not forsake the nation he chose. Number two, he said, God will not forsake the church he knows. And number three, he said, God won't forsake the book he wrote. That's a pretty good outline. I thought about just preaching that one tonight and just leaving this alone. But uh, anyway, let's face it, with so much going on in our world today, it almost seems like that heaven has just got strangely quiet. It almost seems like that the Lord has just walked off and left us. Well, if you've ever felt like that, I think maybe Brother Chris mentioned that in the song that he sang just a moment ago. But can I say that that was the overall consensus in Malachi's day. The people of Malachi's day felt that God had just walked off and left the earth. They weren't denying that there was a God. What they were denying is the God that is was no longer active on the world, the earth, that he had created. They thought God was a do-nothing God. That's right. The, uh, uh, they, they thought that, that God had just quit working. He just left us alone. He just shrouded himself in, in the clouds up in heaven and totally disconnected himself from the earth. But now those of us that know the Bible know that earth, nothing could be farther from the truth. I think we know as God's people that God is interested in what's going on down here. That God is not only interested, but he's also involved in this world that we're living in. And may I just stop and say this, everything is running right according to schedule tonight. Amen. Hey, can I tell you something? Everything is happening just as God said it would. I heard somebody, have you ever heard anybody say this, what in the world is this world coming to? Have you ever heard anybody say that? I got the answer. Anytime somebody asks you, what in the world is this world coming to, say this, this world is coming to Jesus. Amen. I'm telling you, God is still on the throne, and this world, it's on its way to Jesus. Now, before I read this verse tonight, I've got to establish one fact with you. And the fact that I want to establish is this. The one great thing that we know about the God that you and I are serving tonight is the fact that our God never gets tired. He never, ever gets tired. You know, one of my favorite stories in the Bible is found in 1 Kings 17, and you know the story. You may not know the Scripture reference, but you remember the story of Elijah on top of Mount Carmel? And he's up against the 450 prophets of Baal. And uh, you see, the nation is, is, is a great dilemma. They're teetering back and forward, back and forward. And, and they don't know, do we follow Baal? Is, is Baal the real God? Do we follow him? Or is Jehovah God the real God? Do we follow him? And the Bible said they were teetering back and forward between which God they were going to serve. Well, about that time come an old-fashioned, independent, fundamental, premillennial, fried chicken-loving, watermelon-seed-spitting, bus-running, King James-only Baptist prophet on the scene. His name was Elijah. And the Bible said, Elijah said, I tell you what, let's just settle the whole thing right now. Y'all meet me on top of the mountain. And we're going to have a showdown on Carmel. 
And the Bible said that, oh, Elijah went up there, the, the prophets of Baal got up there, and Elijah said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to call on God. You call on your God. I'm going to call on my God and the God that answers by fire. That's the one we're going to serve. Oh, they said, well, that sounds like a good idea. Let's do it. So he said, all right, y'all go first. So those 450 prophets of Baal built their altar, laid the sacrifice on there, and I mean you started, they started calling like somebody was beating their dog. I mean they were calling on Baal. I mean they were pleading with Baal to answer by fire. Old Baal, send the fire, send the fire. And to show how serious they were about this and how sincere they were, they started eating, they started even cutting themselves, jumping up down, having a conniption, and a fit like somebody was a beating their dog and calling on Baal, and yet the Bible said Baal didn't answer. But here's what I love about that. Elijah, the prophet, is standing off over in the corner, and he's laughing at them. I mean, them jumping up and down, having that fit on top of that mountain, and there's no answer whatsoever. Elijah begins to make fun of them and their God. And here's what he said about their God. Notice this verse right here. And it came to pass at noon that Elijah mocked them. I mean, he's laughing at them now. And he said, cry aloud. In other words, what he said, hey, y'all cry louder. He said, for he, is a, uh, for he is a God, either he is talking, he's talking to somebody else and not listening to y'all. Or he said this, or he is pursuing. Now, you look that one up, and that means this, he's gone to the potty. So he said, now maybe, maybe, your God, maybe your God is not listening. He's talking to somebody else. Maybe he's gone to the, uh, to the bathroom. Or he said, or maybe he's gone on a journey and just stepped off the throne and gone on a journey. Or peradventure, perhaps, he said, he sleepeth and must be awake. In other words, Elijah stand over there and said, hey, your God's gone to sleep. But can I tell you something about our God? Our God never sleeps. Our God never, ever gets tired. You and I don't ever have to worry about calling on our God and catching Him in a nap because our God doesn't sleep and He don't even get drowsy. That's about our God. Hey, I don't care if you have a need in the early hours of the morning, the late hours of the night, you can always call upon our God in the name of His Son, Jesus. Approach the throne room of God. And brother, we can find grace to help in the time of need because we are assured our God don't get tired. Our God don't sleep. You say, I need further proof. I'm glad you need it. Here it is. Look at Psalms 121, verse 3. He will not suffer thy foot to be moved. He that keepeth thee, say it with me, will not slumber. Look at this verse, verse 4. The Bible said, Behold, he that keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. For sight counting language, our God don't get tired. Look at this verse. Here's a good one. Isaiah 40, verse 28. Hast thou not known... Hast thou not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary? You know what that verse is saying? Hey, don't you know that our God don't get tired? But I find something in our text tonight that's almost hard to believe. Because in our text tonight, we find God getting weary. And tonight, what we really find in our text is this. And here's, if, if I were to title this sermon, my title would be, 
when God gets tired. Now, we already know the Bible said he don't, he don't sleep, that he don't, he don't tire as such. But yet in our text, look at verse 17, we read these words. The Bible said, Ye have wearied the Lord with your words. God said, I'm just weary with it all. Look at verse 17. Yet ye say, Wherein have we wearied him? When ye say, Everyone that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he, that, and he delighteth in them, or you folks are saying, Where is the God of judgment? Now we find these people tonight, and God said, I tell you what, you folks are just about to wear me out. You folks, not y'all, but I'm people in Malachi's day, God was saying through his prophet Malachi, he said, man, I tell you what, y'all getting me weary. That's right. And we read about it here in verse number 17. So would you do this? Get your prayer sheet out. We have two points to the sermon tonight. Probably take me 45 minutes to get through them, but we have only two points to the message. I'm kidding. Two points to the message tonight. And I want you to look at verse 17. And let me make two statements about this verse. The first statement that I want to make, number one, is this. The patience of God was wearied. The patience of God was wearied. Now, God said in this verse here, you have wearied me. You have made me tired. In other words, God's patience was getting tired of dealing with these people. Can I say two things tonight about the patience of God? Can I say that, number one, God's patience is long? God is a patient God. Can I stop and ask you the question, aren't you glad that God is patient? I am so glad tonight that you and I, the God that you and I serve, is a patient God. In fact, over in the book of Romans, chapter 15, and in verse number 5, we read this. Now, the God of, say it with me, the God of patience. Then I think everybody in this room is familiar with this verse right here in 2 Peter 3, verse number 9, where the Bible said, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering. Aren't you glad that we have a God who suffereth long to us? He is a, he is a patient God. Can I stop and say tonight that I appreciate the patience of God. I appreciate God being long-suffering. I'm glad that God has bore long with me. Aren't you glad God just don't snap at a moment's notice? Amen. I'm glad that He is a patient, a patient God. I remember years ago reading about the famous, or maybe I should say infamous, uh, atheist by the name of Robert Ingersoll. It is said that old Robert Ingersoll and his great attempts to prove that there was no God would gather great crowds of people around them. And then what he would do is he would read passages from the Bible where God struck down people because of their blasphemy against him. So he'd read, he'd read passages like Numbers 21 or Numbers 24 and then he would say, okay, the one thing we understand about God is that he's not patient and when you blaspheme him, he will, he will strike you down immediately. And then they say Robert Ingersoll would go off on a tirade. He would begin to curse God and blaspheme God and curse at God and call God all kinds of names. And then he would say, I have just blasphemed God 
and he would pull a golden pocket watch out of his pocket and say, I'm going to give God five minutes to strike me dead. And then he would count it down. He would start at five minutes, and when it got to four minutes, he would say, four minutes, God. Then three minutes, God. And then two minutes, God. And, one minute, and they said sometime the tension would be almost overwhelming. And he said, I read where actually some ladies would actually pass out as it neared the one-minute mark. I mean, they expected God just to strike him dead. And then when five minutes would pass and there was no lightning from heaven, no fire would fall upon him, he would shut his watch and say, See, I told you there was no God. Well, there's an old preacher over in England by the name of Joseph Parker. I've got some of Joseph Parker's books in my office. And Joseph Parker heard about the antics of Robert Ingersoll. And here's what he said about it. He said, does the American think that he could exhaust the patience of God in only five minutes? Can I tell you something tonight? If God's patience only lasted five minutes, most of us, if not all of us, would already be in hell tonight. I say again, the patience of God is long, and I thank God for it. I guess one of the greatest biblical illustrations, examples of the patience of God would have to be in the life of a man by the name that we've all heard about. His name was Methuselah. There's a reason Methuselah lived to be the oldest man in the Bible, 969 years old. And the reason that he lived that long was because of the patience of God. When Methuselah was born to Enoch, God broke through the darkness of Enoch's soul and revealed to Enoch that a great judgment was getting ready to come upon the earth. And God said, hey, Enoch, when that boy is gone, and by the way, that's what Methuselah means, when he is gone, it will come. You say, preacher, what's the it? The it was the flood of Noah's day. And God said to Enoch, hey, Enoch, when, Noah, or when Methuselah is out of here, when he's gone, the flood is going to come. There's a reason he lived to be 969 years old. Let me tell you what. God was patiently waiting. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, there's a verse over in 2 Peter chapter 2 or chapter 3 which talks about the long-suffering of God which once waited in the days of Noah. God allowed that boy to live to be that age because he was patiently waiting upon the civilization of Noah's day to repent and turn to him because God is not a God who delights in judgment. God is a God who delights in mercy and grace. Can I say again, the patience of God is long. But can I also say this, number two, the patience of God can be lost. It can be lost. You see, His mercy may be extended indefinitely, but His patience can be exhausted eventually. Now, we know that's true about lost people. We know. I, I, I've heard preachers. I've, I've made statements before. I told people, you better get saved while God's dealing with you because I'm telling you, God's patience has its limits. And we quote that verse over in Genesis 6 in verse number 3 where the Bible said that God's Spirit will not always strive with man. And when we try to convince lost people, hey, if the Lord's dealing with you, don't put him away. Don't push him off. Don't, uh, what's the word, procrastinate. Don't wait. There may not be another invitation. There may not be another opportunity. Please don't, don't step over the limits of the patience and the mercy of God. And by the way, I believe there is a line drawn that man can cross. I believe that. But can I tell you something? God's not writing in this text. 
to a bunch of lost people. He's not writing to the Canaanites and the Perizzites. He's writing to the Israelites, his own people. And ladies and gentlemen, while it is true that the lost people can exhaust step over the bounds of the patience of God, it is just as true that those of us that are saved can tread lightly upon the patience of God. Boy, I'll tell you what, one thing we've seen about God throughout these first two chapters, He's been patient with His people. He's been very... God said, hey, back in chapter 1, I love you, I love you, and the people said, wherein hast thou loved us? If I'd have been God, I'd have snapped and said, don't worry about it. Boy, he's patient. I mean, God revealed himself to these people and he, and he revealed himself as a faithful father, a fa father. Remember back in chapter 1, he said, if I therefore am your father... Uh, where is my respect, my reverence? He revealed himself as a faithful follower, uh, father. He revealed himself as a marvelous master. And yet these people didn't respect him as a father nor reverence him as a, a master. He called for them to bring the best sacrifices that they had. But what did these people bring? They brought the contemptible, the second best, the leftovers, the worst that they had. God said, serving me is a blessing. The people said, no, serving you is a burden and instead of these people portraying his holiness they profaned his holiness and now instead of adoring the one who had blessed them and made them who they were they're actually in a in a prideful arrogant way accusing God Almighty of going against his very nature I'm telling you God was patient with them much more patient than I would have ever been but I tell you what God's patience can be lost it can be exhausted. Can I, uh, can I show you a verse? Look at this verse right here. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 24. Watch this now. God said, You, thou hast brought me no sweet cane with money. God said, You, you, you didn't bring me what... You hadn't filled me with the fat of thy sacrifices, but thou hast made me to serve with thy sins. Look at this. Thou hast wearied me with thine iniquities. God said, y'all have just wore me out. Boy, I don't want to be guilty of wearying God. No, sir. I, 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 don't, I don't want to ever come to the place that God just looks at me and said, I'm telling you, you're just about to wear me out. That's right. You see, God's patience is long, but God's patience can be lost. God's people. As crazy as what I'm about to tell you may sound, God's people can exhaust the patience of God. When God, now let me tell you something about God's patience. When God's patience ceases, God's judgment commences. Well, we better thank God He's patient. I'll tell you what, can I say this? Our nation better thank God He's patient. I think God is sending us wake-up calls now in America. I think 9-11 that we're getting ready to celebrate next week, that's a wake-up call to America. I'm telling you, these other events that are happening in America, look, they're not just by coincidence. I think God is saying, hey, 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 y'all better wake up and come back to me. Listen, I'm getting wore down by the way you act, and I, I'm losing patience with you. Brother, I want to tell you something. We can weary we can, we can weary God's patience. So number one, the patience of God was wearied. They, God said, look at verse 17, you've wearied the Lord 
perspective wearied me. God's patience was weary. But then notice number two, and I'm done, but this is my favorite part. Second of all, God's people were wrong. You see, what they were doing was, in verse 17, it was bad enough. Watch this now. It, their ways was bad enough. How they were treating God was bad enough. But let me tell you what I think really was the straw that broke the camel's back. It was not their ways, but their words. What they were saying about God. What they were accusing God of doing. So look at verse 17. God said, you've wearied me. And yet they arrogantly say back to God, God, wherein have we wearied you? God said, hey man, y'all are wearing me down. Oh yeah? Really? I mean, that's their attitude. Oh yeah? Really? Arrogant. I'm talking about, I'm talking about just, just full of pride. God's heart was breaking over their condition. God's heart was broken over the direction that they were going in. And God said, hey, hey, you're wearying me. You're exhausting my patience. And their response, oh, yeah, what have we done wrong? Well, I'm telling you, so boy, it's a dangerous place to get in with God. Can I tell you this? You're on thin ice, friend. When your attitude or my attitude becomes, oh, yeah, God, what am I doing wrong? And so here's what they were doing. Here's their words. Look at verse 17. When ye say... And here's what these arrogant people were saying. When ye say, everyone that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord. Now hold on just a minute. Are you kidding me? Everyone that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And then notice this second statement. And he delighteth in them. God is happy with them. Can I, look at this. Are you... Thank you. Are you kidding me? I mean, are these people, I mean, you talk about, can I use this word, I know y'all probably didn't think I knew this one, preposterous? How preposterous is those statements there? God, everybody does evil. Everybody that doeth evil in your sight, uh, everyone that doeth evil is good in your sight. In other words, God was saying, everybody, they were saying, everybody that goes out and does wrong is, is all right with you. And, and then they go on to say this, and you even delight in them. You bless them. In other words, here's what they were doing. Number one, they were accusing God of delighting in iniquity. Look at that phrase there. Everyone that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delighteth in them. In other words, what they were doing, they were claiming that God, that those who did evil were good in the sight of the Lord. It was almost like they were saying, God, you prefer the company of the wicked over the company of the righteous. In other words, they were saying, God, you love people that do wrong. You don't like people that do right. Is that not crazy? I mean, how preposterous was this? They accused God, verse 17, look at that, everyone that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord. They were accusing God of, uh, of delighting in, in the evil in the lives of people. Now, let me show you what the Bible said about God looking upon evil. Look at this, Habakkuk 1, verse 13. Here's what the Bible said about God. Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil and canst not look on iniquity. I mean, the, you know, one of the reasons that we believe that God turned his back on his own son when he was on the cross. Remember one of the seven statements Jesus made while he was on the cross? is when he cried out of that darkness and said, 
not Father, Father, why hast thou? But for the first time, Jesus referred to God as God. And he said, my God, my God, why? Boy, I'll tell you what, that kind of leads us to believe that for the first time in history, fellowship between God the Father and God the Son had been severed. Why? I'll tell you why. Jesus was on that cross being made sin for you and for me. God went over to where Jesus was hanging on the cross and dumped all of our sins out on Jesus. And He, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, who knew no sin became our sin that we might be made the righteousness of God through Him. Yeah, God, He can't even look on evil. And yet these crazy people are saying, Oh, you behold evil and you like it, God. I mean, what, what false accusations they were bringing against God. Look at this text right here, Genesis chapter 6, speaking of the days of Noah. And God saw the wickedness of man, that it was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the next verse says this, And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it gladdened him at his heart. Did I misread that? I know I got my glasses on. But I don't think God said, I looked upon all the evil of Noah's day, that the evil of man's heart was only evil continually, and God said, when I saw all that, it didn't gladden my heart. It grieved my heart. See how preposterous this statement is. Oh, Lord, you look upon those who sin, and you delight in it. How crazy is that? Can I tell you something? God don't, God don't delight when one of his children goes off into sin. Hey, God, don't sit up in heaven and congratulate us when we rebel against Him and step across the lines of the precious Word of God, turn our back on the teaching of the Bible and go out into this world and live like the devil himself. Let me tell you something, friend. God don't delight in that. Never has, never will. How preposterous that statement. They were saying that God delighted in iniquity. By the way, that word delight means to, uh, the word delight means to bestow favors or blessings. God don't bless wicked people. You say, well, preacher, I'll be honest with you. I know somebody that don't even come to church and they ride around in a Rolls Royce and wear floor shine shoes and Rolex watches and their house is about 6,000 square feet and, and boy, they got a, har a large bank account, three Harleys in the garage, seven boats in the backyard and a lake to put them in. Boy, God sure has blessed them. Look at me. Not on your life. Listen, the mercy of God is good to each and every one of us. And one of the questions I think we all grapple with from time to time is why do good things happen to bad people? But I guarantee you, watch this. When everything's said and done, when the smoke is settled and the dust is cleared and this thing is long over with, guess who wins? We do. We do because he did. That is exactly, that is exactly right. And they were accusing God of blessing wickedness. So they, number one, they said God delights in iniquity. But notice that last phrase there in verse 17 where they said, where is the God of judgment? They accused God of dwelling in idleness. In other words, they said all this is going on and God ain't doing nothing about it. But I want you to look at me and I'm done. I know there's a lot going on in this world. And sometimes you almost just want to look up to heaven and say, man, God, do something. But can I tell you something? 
He is doing something. God's active. God's not sitting up in heaven, grown idle. Hey, can I tell you something about God? He's not an old man sitting in a rocket chair. Amen? He's not an old man taking nerve pills who's lost control of everything that's going on down here on the earth, who's drinking, who's having to drink Pepto-Bismol and pop tagament pills and chew on Rolaid because he's lost control of what's going on. I told you a moment ago, God's in control, and this old world is in the process of coming to Jesus. It is. Now, we're going to hit some bumps along the way, and there's going to be some tough times. I promise you all that. But you say, preacher, why don't God judge this mess? Look at me. He will. He will. And, and look, I don't, I don't want you to mistake me. I'm not gloating over the fact that people are going to die and go to hell, but I just want to tell you something. Friend, God's going to take care of it someday. You don't have to question, where is the God of judgment? I'll tell you where he's at, sitting on the throne. What's God doing on the earth? I'll tell you what he's doing on the earth. He's working through his church. You say, well, what's he doing? I'll tell you what he's doing. He's finding a bride for his son. I got an old book in my office by Guy King. Brother Baker may have some of those books. And he said this, and I'm done, but he said God loved his son so much that he's doing three things for him. Number one, he said he is fashioning believers like his son, Jesus Christ. In other words, he said God loves Jesus so much that he wants all the rest of his children to be just like his one son, Jesus Christ. He's fashioning believers. Number two, he said he's finished a book, and we call that book the Bible. You say, preacher, what's this Bible about? Jesus. Yeah, man. It's about, you say, well, it's about the nation of Israel. Well, it is, but it's about Jesus. God, fashion, God is fashioning believers. God has finished a book. And then he said, number three, God's finding a bride. Every time somebody gets saved, they become a part of the bride of Christ. And I don't know when, I don't know where, but one of these days, that bride is going to become complete. And God's going to say, son, go get your bride. And then you talk about God righting the wrongs. You talking about God balancing the books. You talk about God settling the scores. God's going to make it all right. Amen. So you and I don't have to worry. God's in control. Good verse, isn't it? Can you believe that this little old puny peon down here can weary God? I don't want to weary him. I don't want to worry him. Amen. I want to honor him by the way I live. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father.